I really appreciate coming in here uh, at 629 every Thursday morning. And uh, first of all, seeing you here. And uh, secondly, knowing that they have taken care of everything so beautifully, including the distribution of your Bibles this morning. And uh, a couple of you have scolded me over the years for uh, giving notes out the next week. You say, that doesn't really help me very much. I appreciate giving them out the week of. But we're going to try. You know, sometimes we'll make it, sometimes we won't. Uh, past couple of Thursdays we've made it, so that's good. And uh, you have notes, and all you need to do is fill in a few blanks to keep up with us that day, and maybe that will help you uh, in, your, in your taking of notes. So we'll, we'll try to do that if we can. And uh, we appreciate Pam Akes, who uh, gets, us, uh, gets all those things ready uh, the uh, day before. Uh, let me speak for just a moment about these Bibles. You know, we said earlier these are called Spirit of the Reformation Study Bible. That means that the study notes in this Bible are going to be from a particular theological perspective that everyone in this room does not share. We understand that. It's okay. Look, I have all kinds of study Bibles up in my office. I have the Schofield Study Bible. I have Ryrie Study Bible. I have all kinds of study Bibles that have theological perspectives with which I don't agree. But that's one reason I have them, so that I can learn from the rest of the church who doesn't always agree with me. So if you happen not to be so favorably inclined toward a reformed view of things, great. You've got a study Bible from somebody uh, written with study notes that you don't agree with. Great. That will help you out. Uh, one time my dad was making fun of me about just reading editorials from people with whom I always agree instead of branching out and reading people that I don't agree with. And so since, ever since that time, I've tried to carefully read people with whom I don't agree. So don't feel badly if you sometimes look at these notes and, and don't think they quite see things the way you do. But just... Just to take it as an opportunity. Uh, you'll notice some very fine things about this, regardless of your theological perspective. Uh, if you turn to Hosea, which is on page 1401 in the study Bible, I think our pagination is the same. I better check and see. Is 1401 the beginning of the introduction of Hosea? Okay, good. We've got the same pagination. And here you'll see just an excellent introduction in, you know, two and a half pages. And out of that, you'll get the, uh, the quick overview of what's going on there. You get something about the author, the time and place of writing, which will connect you to Kings and Chronicles and, and Nehemiah and some other things going on where you can read. And I put that in your daily Bible readings. I've tried to set those daily Bible readings so that you're reading in other parts of the Bible that are relevant. But the time and place of writing helps you understand its historical setting, which is important, as we see, to understanding its message. And then you get its purpose and distinctives. And that's an excellent short little treatment summarizing what Hosea is all about. And then, you notice the last section is Christ in Hosea. And something that's very important in the Old Testament is always look for Christ. Christ is throughout the Bible. You want to be sure you're looking for him all the time because he is the glue that holds it together. He's also the object of the entire book, ultimately is showing us God's salvation in Jesus Christ. And the, the writer here does a great job of that. Then, of course, you get an outline which shows you generally, uh, just literally, how the book breaks out. Then, if you'll look on even on page one right there uh, of, of the already page 1403, uh, where you have the beginning of Hosea. If you look at the bottom of that page, you'll see what we call the study notes. And, for example, one uh, one says down there, superscription. Hosea introduces prophecy, specifying himself as God's messenger, indicating the time frame in which God's word came to him. The word of the Lord. And it gives you a good little article there 
about what it, what Hosea's name means and the idea of his getting the word of the Lord. Then you get, if you look on down the study notes, you get then one, two through three, five. So he's taking the first part of the outline and showing you how it's divided up. It's just very helpful as you're studying a book of the Bible. So you never want to substitute uh, anybody's study notes for the Bible itself. Be very careful. I mean, some people are tempted just to, well, I'll just read the introduction of the study notes and generally I'll know what the thing says. Don't have to read it myself. Like Cliff Notes or something. Don't do that. Uh, the Bible is the Word of God, not the study notes. And even in the introduction of this Bible, you'll see that Rich Pratt, who's the general editor, uh, says that very clearly. That no matter what they put in this, this book, the part that is God's revelation infallible is the Bible itself. So be sure you're studying the Bible. But these outlines will really help you. And the study notes will explain some things that otherwise might be a little bit um, uh, exotic. Some things you might not have uh, studied uh, before or make historical references or geographical references you don't understand, these study notes I think will be very helpful. Now, if you turn back to, uh, let me see if I can find it. I'm, not, I'm probably not going to find it. But there's a, there's a section in here I signed that has to do with just an introduction to the prophets. I believe it's page 1064. Look at page 1064. I don't know where it is in the Bible. I just have the page number. You'll get little... Things like this. Yeah, introduction to the prophetic books. Now, isn't that really helpful? If you look on the bottom of page, that first page, introduction to the prophetic books on, 10, on 1064, you'll see that there are three basic periods in which the, the prophets spoke. The Assyrian judgment, the Babylonian judgment. You know, there was the Assyrian captivity, 722 B.C., then the Babylonian in 586 B.C., and then you have the period of restoration that comes uh, in, in the 4th century, or 5th century uh, B.C. And these prophets, their messages are, are distinctive to each one of those periods. And you can turn to this page and see real quickly where, uh, you know, the existing prophet that we're studying uh, belongs. For example, if you look, Hosea, uh, his dates seem to be 753 to 722. He's in the Assyrian judgment period. Well, that really helps, as we'll see this morning. He makes multiple references to Assyria. He makes references to Egypt, and we'll say, what is that all about? And it's because he's in this period, and that will explain a lot of what he's saying. That, those two pages, uh, oh, I'm sorry, four pages, are also very interesting and helpful in understanding the nature of prophetic uh, literature. And I've already made some references to that in our times past. So you'll get that. And then the third thing you'll get is that there are theological sidebars. Uh, for example, on page 902, uh, if you'll turn there, uh, we'll see one that was that we were to take a look at earlier. Uh, Who made God the self-existence of God? There's a short little article. And uh, this study Bible has excellent little doctrinal sidebars like this. Just in a few paragraphs, you get a summary of a very important doctrine. And I've already recommended several of those, including one on justification for today, uh, page uh, 1813, uh, which talks about how we are justified. Well, there are many of those little articles. Once again, I know that all of you will not agree with all of them. That's fine. But at least you'll know, hey, what do these crazy uh, Presbyterians believe? Uh, at least you'll understand why we're so whacked out. 
Uh, if you just look at those theological sidebars, that'll explain everything, all of our psychology. Um, so, and then of course, feel free to ask questions about any of it. Um, you can email me uh, if you like. Whenever you have questions, uh, don't overwhelm me. But if if there's uh, some question you have, I can usually get back to you within a week or two. So uh, feel free to do that. So uh, then, in the, the very back of the study Bible, you will find some reformational statements of faith. And regardless of your background, Methodist, Baptist, um, Episcopalian, Catholic, Orthodox, secular, whatever, uh, all of us, I think, can benefit from many of the statements in here. Some of them are just extremely well worded. Now, Presbyterians use the Westminster Confession of Faith and Catechisms. But I want to say to those of you who are Presbyterians, take a good look at the Heidelberg Catechism. It's just beautifully written. Now, the Dutch... Tend, uh, tend to use the Heidelberg, uh, and so we don't we don't get it into our regular liturgy, but it's just a, a wonderful expression of faith. The Belgic Confession is awfully helpful. So uh, anyway, hopefully from time to time uh, you'll find those theological standards helpful. Uh, almost any theological question you have, it'd be hard for me to imagine one that you have that is not addressed by something in one of those theological standards. For example, if you ask me a question, I would generally refer to several parts of those standards to help explain. And you'll notice that there are Bible references given, if I remember correctly, uh, for these standards. Uh, isn't there? Yes, Bible references are given, for example, on the Westminster Confession of Faith, on pages 2180, and so you'll see uh, Scripture references given there. So that's the reason that we've assigned this as our textbook. It's not, you know, it is the Bible, but it also has some helpful study guides we're moving so quickly through several books of the Bible that we felt that just the two or three pages of introduction, if you can do that on each one of the Bible books that we're studying and take a look at those study notes, especially when you have questions, you will have a good understanding of the minor prophets. So uh, it, it'll be an excellent textbook. Now, we have looked at, uh, now turning back to Hosea, back on page uh, 1403 and following, uh, in Hosea... We have looked at chapters 1 through 3. And remember we said this, that Hosea basically has two major divisions. Chapters 1 through 3 talk about this weird sort of commandment that Hosea gets to go marry a prostitute. And then after she is disobedient again, he's to go buy her back from the marketplace from slavery. And just like Jesus Christ bought us back. He made us. We sinned and rebelled against him. He goes and buys us back. And Hosea and Gomer set this beautiful picture of salvation, what anyone will enjoy who gives their life to Jesus Christ. Who, what anyone will join, uh, enjoy who gives their life to Jesus Christ. This, this drama of being a, a rebel, a little rebel, and God just continues to pursue you, buy you back, and take you to himself, and give you a plan for life. We saw in chapter 3 that Hosea takes her back, but he says, now look, Gomer, this is the way we're going to live. And God is saying to you, I bought you back. I redeemed you. I saved you. This is the way we're going to live. And he lays down a path for us to live happily with him. And God graciously does that for us. And we see that his law is extremely helpful for us. Not only does his law show us our need for salvation, which it does. It leads us to Christ. Because if you don't have Christ and you are living the way all of us have lived and you look, take a look at that law, you're going to feel real guilty because you are guilty. And it will eventually lead you to the solution, which is Christ. 
So the law is very helpful in leading you to Christ. But then once you come to Christ, what we find is the law is extremely helpful because it's like a lovemaking manual. It shows you how to have intimacy with God. So we love the law because it shows us how to get close to Him. So He says to Gomer, I'm buying you back and I've got a plan for your life and here it is. It's laid out. You're going to be faithful. And so that's what God does with us. He buys us back and He says, I'm going to give you a new heart. I'm going to give you what you've heard. Many people say I'm born again. What it means is they've got the new birth. That means they've got a new nature. They're, they're born all over again. It's a new world. All things have become new. And, and God says to us, just like Hosea says to Gomer, I'm going to forgive you all your sins. I'm going to take you back into marriage. You're going to be mine forever. And you're going to have a new heart. And we're going to have an intimate life together. And that's what God is saying to you. It's a wonderful plan of salvation. He not only takes care of our sin and pays for it, but He takes care of our future by giving us a heart to walk with Him. Now, that's the overture. Those first three chapters we saw is kind of like the symphonic overture to this great orchestral piece that's now going to be played for us. So the first three chapters had to do with this little narrative, this little story between Jose and Gomer, which introduces chapters 4 through 14 that give us now the full brunt of God's relationship with us. Now, these chapters are extremely important for us. It doesn't matter whether you're a banker, a school teacher, a ditch digger, a preacher, whatever you are. G.K. Chesterton said the most important thing about a man is what he thinks about God. And that's the most important thing in your life, whether you realize it or not. And you have a theology whether you realize it or not. You may never have gone to church in your life, but I promise you, you have thoughts about who God is. Everybody does. You can't be a human being without speculating about these things. So everybody has a theology. And the most determinant factor in your life is what you think about who he is. Now, what Hosea then is showing us is who this great God is so that we know not only how to relate to him, but so that we know how to live before him. We've got to know his character so that we know how we're supposed to live. And there are two things that we're going to find that are extraordinarily important to get down in your theology really clearly. Two very simple things. And this will determine how you live your life. Number one, is there a healthy fear of God in your life? As R.C. Sproul says, if you don't fear God, you're stupid. (laughs) Because he's awesome. And all one has to do is take one little glance at the Bible and watch him send fire on Sinai or divide the Red Sea or kill 300,000 Midianites. You realize this God is powerful. And if you don't fear him, you're absolutely foolish. That's what the Bible calls people who don't fear God. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. There is no fear of God by the fool. And so the first thing we've got to get nailed down in our lives is that God is awesome and we have to learn how to fear Him in the right way. Now, we're going to see that fear is mightily qualified and defined by the second thing we need to know about God, and that is His grace and compassion. So we have to love God. We fear Him and we love Him. We are in awe of Him and we're grateful for Him. So He is awesome and He is gracious. He is holy and powerful and He is as compassionate as the most tender mother's heart. Those two things you've really got to know clearly about God before you can be a good banker. Seriously. You can't do anything well without those two things nailed down in your heart. Now what's so interesting, if you look at Isaiah in Isaiah 6, if we can take a side road here for a minute, When he's called to go out and be a prophet, 
for Israel. You see these same two traits. God is high and lifted up to Isaiah. His train fills the temple. The seraphim sing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. So Isaiah, the first thing he sees is the fearsome character of the holiness of God. And what does he do? He then says, Woe to me, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King. So first thing Isaiah gets and nails it down is, God is holy, I am not. Gets that real clear. Then, of course, you remember that God, as it were, nods to one of the seraphim. He takes a coal from the altar and singes Isaiah's lips and says, your transgressions are forgiven. Your sins are atoned for. There's the compassion and gracious character of God. And then God says, of course, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And Isaiah would be a complete fruitcake if he didn't say at that point, here am I, send me. I mean, because he's seen the holiness of God and he's seen the grace of God. And he's experienced them both. And that's the reason. Then now we're ready for obedience. You see how important the character of God is in our minds. Once you understand He's holy and awesome, and you understand He has tender compassion for me, forgives me all my sins, and includes me in His family. I'm His. Man, I belong to Him. I'm sold out completely. Because I understand those two things about God. Likewise, Paul, in 2 Corinthians 5, when he is talking to us about our ministry as ambassadors in this world, ambassadors for Christ, so that we're the ones who plead with the whole world to be reconciled to God. What does he say? We fear God, he says. And then secondly, he says, the love of Christ constraineth me. You see the same two traits. The most important thing about you for the rest of your life is you know these two things about God down deep in your heart. You really believe He is holy and awesome in His sovereign power. And you fear Him as a a servant would fear his master, as a, a citizen of the kingdom would fear the king. Do you really fear him? And secondly, do you trust his love and compassion that he will forgive all your sins? Those are the two most important things in life, and there's no nothing else more important than that. So, today, we want to deal with these two things. We're going to get them right out of Hosea, and we're going to look at the various aspects of this. And, and here's our goal today, is that everybody here... We'll study these two things as we go through. And be sure you've got it. Be sure you've got it. If you don't have it, don't stop until you get it. There's nothing more important in your life today. There's nothing more important in your life for the rest of your life. Let's be sure you get these things. And that they are viscerally part of your life. Then, gentlemen, you can read all the professional books you want to, all the how-to books you want to, all the purpose-driven life books you want to, everything that will give you hints about how to live your life. I'm telling you, if you have these two things, you'll be a good father. If you have these two things, you'll be a good husband. If you have these two things and you're continuing to study His Word, it'll come out of your pores when you've got those two things. All right. We want to look at, first of all, at verses uh, chapter 4, 1, all the way through 9, 9. And we are racing today, boys. Put your seatbelt on. First thing is we want to be sure we get the severity of God's grace. God's grace is severe because we're sinners. It's like a father who loves his son and he'll never let him go. But his son is a knucklehead. So he has to stay on that son. He has to work with that son. And that's exactly what your God's going to do. He is not going to give you up. And so, guys, because we continually screw up, we're going to get the severity of his grace because he's a loving father. And uh, the writer of Hebrews says, if you're not disciplined, you're a bastard. You're not a son. 
A legitimate son is always disciplined. So when you get the discipline from the Lord, don't say, oh, he doesn't love me. No, that's a sign that he does love you. So we're going to understand his severity. First of all, God indicts his own people when they're hypocritical. He indicts his hypocritical people. And we're going to see this in chapters 4 and 5. First of all, God will indict his people. He says here in verse 1 of chapter 4 and in verse 1 of chapter 5. It's like, hear ye, hear ye. We're having a court session. So God will indict his people. He calls them to hear. And then he says, I've got a charge against you. So once again, we're back in the courtroom as we spoke of in chapter 2 of Hosea. Here's the courtroom setting. God is the plaintiff and you be the defendant. Not a nice place to be, especially when God is also the judge, the jury, and the executioner. <clears throat> so, what's he, what's he going to accuse us of? Well, first of all, we see some sins of omission. If you'll look in the beginning of chapter 4, he says, Hear the word of the Lord, you Israelites, because the Lord has a charge to bring against you who live in the land. Look at these, these charges. First of all, the sins of omission. There is no faithfulness, no love. No acknowledgement of God in the land. These things God takes to heart when there's no faithfulness, no love from the heart, and no knowledge of Him. He says, my people are perishing for lack of knowledge. They don't know me. Chesterton was right. The most important thing about a man is whether he knows God or not and what his view of God is. And God is saying, I'll look out over these people's minds and, you know, he can read our minds. The devil can't read your mind. God reads your mind. And he looks into your mind and says, Hello? Anything in there? You haven't been reading the Bible lately? Have you thought about me lately? Don't see much in there. There's no acknowledgement of God in the land. They're secularists who are playing with religion. And so many people who go to church today are secularists playing with religion. These are the sins of omission. And in Romans 1.18, you'll see a certain sequence that this lack of knowledge leads to a deep immorality. And this deep immorality leads to destruction. And God just gives them over. So you'll see a certain sequence in Paul's uh, description, his litany of the wickedness of the Gentiles in Romans 1, 18 and following. And he says the creation has, has made God known. His deity and His power are known in creation. And yet people have actively suppressed what is available to them in creation. So even people in this world who have no Bibles, no access to a Bible, no evangelists, they never heard the name of Jesus Christ, even in a swear word, they don't know anything except what creation gives them. Paul says, even in their case, what is available to them, they have actively suppressed in their unrighteousness. He says that in verses 20 and 21. So in Romans 1, you get this description of the person who has not had exposure to the revealed word of God. They've had exposure to the revealed character of God in creation, and even they have suppressed it. So he's saying the, the human being, whether in a religious setting or a non-religious setting, has actively suppressed what can be known about God. This leads to immorality, and this leads to destruction. So there's the pattern. You're getting the same thing with Israel. And our sin is worse. Because we've had the Word of God. Israel had the Word of God. The church has the Word of God. So we've had His revelation in Scripture, not just creation. We've suppressed what can be made known to us, which has led to immorality, which is leading to destruction. And all, one has, all you have to do is just look in the sexual realm in the past 50 years. And look what has happened. We have God is dead, or at least the question is asked in, in Time magazine in the 1960s. At the same time, you have the sexual revolution. 
And then right after that, you have this massive dissolution of the American family. Massive dissolution. And then we see all the poverty. Poverty rates are continuing to go up. Educational rates are going down. Uh, Suicide rates are going up. Where's this all coming from? From the massive destruction of the family, which comes from a massive disobedience of God's sexual commandments, which comes from a massive ignorance of who God is. It's just being played out right in front of our faces. And we're like frogs that are being boiled in water. As long as it's gradual, the frog won't hop out. He'll just stay right there and he's boiled. And the same thing is happening to us. The water is heating up and heating up and heating up. Well, it's fine. It's a great party. I guess we'll have to micromanage this, micromanage that. Nobody's into massive repentance, which is what's needed to take care of these massive avalanche that's been happening right in front of our faces. So what you're getting is God is showing us the heart of cultural dissolution. And it comes with no faithfulness, no love, which is based on no knowledge of God. Then he goes to sins of commission and you get this in verses four, two and following. He says, OK, there's no knowledge of God. What is there? Well, there's only cursing, lying, murder, stealing and adultery. Kind of a long list there, isn't it? Really, God's getting into it here. I think he's I think he's ticked off. And then what does he say? He says this leads to, like we were saying before, despoiling the creation. So you have these things that are happening among us, our lack of knowledge of God, our lack of commitment to his word and his commandments. And then you have this incredible dissolution that happens across the creation. We were made, gentlemen, to be leaders. We were made to have dominion over the earth, all the vegetable world, all the animal world. Adam named all the animals. Why? Because he was to have dominion over them. You name something that you have responsibility over. That's the reason you name your children and you give them your name. So you have responsibility over them and you are their supervisors, if you will, as long as they are minority under your care. So when you name something, you have dominion over it. And that's what Adam had dominion over the whole earth. That was his responsibility. And he just gave it up for his own selfish, sensual pleasures. That's what men are doing over and over again. They have responsibilities for their home, for their wife and their children, and they just... Give it up because of lack of convenience or whatever. And then what happens? The whole creation is despoiled. And then you see the stubbornness, uh, the sin of stubbornness in chapter 4, verse 16. He says the Israelites are stubborn, like a stubborn heifer. You ever tried to work with? How many here have worked with a stubborn heifer before? Yeah, you know. Okay, you guys know. (laughs) Hey, I'm being called a stubborn heifer. I don't like that. If you know what a stubborn heifer is, you're saying... I don't think that's a compliment. Uh, You know, it's only 7.05 in the morning, but I don't think that was a compliment. So he's calling us a stubborn heifer. And then he says, how then can the the Lord pasture them like lambs in a meadow? When they're acting like bullheaded heifers. Stubborn. And then in chapter 5, we get that we're arrogant. Here's the irony of this thing. Is that not only are we bullheaded, ignorant about God, Uh, abandoning His Word, despoiling the entire creation. But we're arrogant. (laughs) It's it's hard to describe how how ironic this is. But in verse 5, he says, Israel's arrogance testifies against them. The Israelites, even Ephraim, stumble in their sin. Judah also stumbles with them. They've caused not only Israel to stumble, but now the southern kingdom, Judah, is stumbling too. And they're proud of it. 
Like Paul says in chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians. He said, let me tell you, you all have misunderstood the gospel. You've thought that when you're saved by grace, that means, well, heck, if I'm saved by grace, I'll go sin all the more because when I sin, God's gracious. My, his business is to forgive. Mine is to sin. We've got a good deal here. And so in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul talks about a man who is sleeping with his stepmother. Now, I know that wouldn't be very attractive to most people here. Think about it. Well, it's just rank immorality. And Paul says, not only is this something that even the pagans wouldn't do, but he says, you're boasting about it. Like, well, look how free we are. You know, we don't condemn anybody. We accept people just as they are. Sound familiar? You are promoting things that even the pagans wouldn't promote, and you're proud of it. This is how bad it gets when your view of God gets a little bit off whack and you start living it out and one lie and self-deception leads to the next one and you're sitting like you're on top of the world, proud of yourself, and whereas in reality, you're at the bottom of the heap. That's Israel in the time of Hosea. Now, God also indicts the clergy. And just quickly, you can take a look at this in uh, uh it's primarily actually in chapter 4. If you back up, you'll see he says in verse 6, My people are destroyed from lack of knowledge. This is a key. Once again, the most important thing about a man is what he believes about God. And my people are destroyed because they don't have it. So you can see the destructive nature of not knowing God. Because you have rejected knowledge, I also reject you as my priests. Because you have ignored the law of your God, I also will ignore your children. The more the priests increased, the more they sinned against me. They exchanged their glory, that is God, for something disgraceful. They feed on the sins of my people and relish their wickedness. Look at that. They feed on the sins of the people. So what the priests, that is the spiritual leaders are doing, they're not asking what does the Word of God say. They're saying, what do the people think? What will they like? What will tickle their ears so that when they hear me preach about it, they'll say, oh, he's such a nice man. I think I'll give a few more shekels in the offering plate. That's what the priests are doing. They're feeding on the people's sins, figuring out what it is they want him to say so that they can feel good about themselves in all their arrogance and ignorance of the law of God. The priest isn't going to confront the people. He isn't going to make them unhappy. Oh, no, don't upset the church. Don't want to be a harsh preacher. Don't want to be a fire breather. I'll just go along with the people. They feed on the sins of the people. And then look what happens. Uh, And it will be, verse 9, like people, like priests. I will punish both of them for their ways and repay them for their deeds. So he's saying to the priest, you know what? You have no character at all. You, You who teach in Sunday school, you who lead small groups, you who preach from pulpits and from lecterns, and you who are making grand statements in the business place, you have no boldness at all, no courage at all. You're just going along with the with the trend. And your theology comes from the newspaper and it just kind of drifts along, you know. And so your theology just kind of drifts along in the newspaper, whatever the majority is saying. And you're acting like a politician. Now, I'm all for politics. And I think sometimes Christians are not very good politicians because they don't listen to the people. Politicians are supposed to listen to people. But when you're trying to figure out how to live your life, you don't do that like a politician. You do that like a theologian. And you have to ask, what does God say? Whether men agree with me or not, what does God say? You have to base your life on that. That's the fear of God. 
You see here the opposite of the fear of God. It's called the fear of man. And some of us are living lives that are now in bondage to the fear of man. We flatter people because we want them to like us. We do exactly what the boss says, even if it's illegal. We never raise a stink because we don't want to be unpopular. We go along with all the party crowd because we don't want them to think that we're prudish. We do all these things. We're in absolute bondage to the fear of man. That's the opposite of the fear of God. So what we're talking about, this first thing to nail down about God, is that He alone is the source of eternal truth. And let every man be a liar. God is true. And we let everything else go by the wayside when it contradicts God. That's the first thing you nail down because you're in fear of Him. You know He's powerful. You know He's holy. You know He's righteous. You know He's good. You know that He is the summum bonum. He is the highest good Himself. He is that after which I aspire. He is the target of my life. He is the trajectory I'm living for. That's the fear of God. And if you don't nail that down, you are susceptible to every wind of doctrine that blows your way in your business place today. And every ethical norm that blows by your business place today, that is your standard. Because you don't have a standard except that you want to be happy and popular with people. So this is the fear of God. And he excoriates both the church and its priests, its leaders, its teachers. Now notice, God not only notices this, but he will judge and punish his hypocritical people. It's inevitable. Because he is a fearsome God. He's a holy God. He doesn't just pretend as though it's not happening. He doesn't sweep things under the rug. He notices everything. God's people, we see in chapter 5, first of all, will be attacked and laid waste. And you get this, you know, very clearly uh, when he says, Sound the trumpet, chapter 5, verse 8. Sound the trumpet in Gibeah, the horn in Ramah. Raise the battle cry in Beth-Avon. These are all places of wickedness. Lead on, O Benjamin. Ephraim will be laid waste on the day of reckoning. So the first thing is, God's people will be attacked. You have all the Scripture verses there. Uh, to to illustrate that. So, what God sees, God will act upon. And then uh, we have in chapter 6, roughly, the concept that God's people have refused God's repeated offer to heal them. Now, particularly, I want you to look at verses 1 through 3. And... This, most scholars suggest, is what is known as hypocritical or insincere repentance. So it's not real repentance. It's a false repentance that's offered in chapter 6, 1 through 3. He says, come, let us return to the Lord. He has torn us to pieces, but he will heal us. He has injured us, but he will bind up our wounds. Now, this is true. But now look what follows. And this is the reason scholars think that this is kind of a... um, parody of real repentance. They go on to say, after two days, He will revive us. And on the third day, He will restore us that we may live in His presence. Let us acknowledge the Lord. Let us press on to acknowledge Him. As surely as the sun rises, He will appear. He will come to us like the winter rains, like the spring rains that water the earth. Okay? Now, There's a sense in which, you know, you might read that and say, isn't the Lord good? Look, after two days, the third day. You know, it's kind of a symbol of how ready he is to forgive. And I think, you know, there's a legitimate debate here whether whether it's true or it's a picture of insincere repentance. But 
Look at verse 4 and you'll see God's sadness over this. He says, what can I do with you, Ephraim? What can I do with you, Judah? Your love is like the morning mist, like the early dew that disappears. So it seems that he is saying, look how superficial you are. Look how transient your affections are. Look how fickle you are. On the one hand, you're saying, now let's acknowledge the Lord. Let's all turn to him because he wouldn't hurt a flea now. He'll come back. Don't worry about this Assyrian threat up here on the north. See, this is what this is all about. It's explaining why Assyria is going to take Israel into captivity. What is God doing? It's kind of like saying, what's this Rita and Katrina thing? Will somebody please explain this? Somebody needs to give me a theological answer. That's what these people are saying. Someone needs to explain this Assyria thing. They came in and ransacked Israel, took all the people in captivity. Ah, lo and behold, they found the words of Hosea before it ever happened. Oh, you know, he said something about this a few years ago. Let's see if we can dig up those oracles. Well, looky here what he was saying. See, Hosea is explaining it before it happens. If you don't obey the Lord, there are going to be consequences. And this superficial, fake repentance doesn't get it. A, A sociopath is always very sorry he gets caught. That's what a sociopath is. Oh, hey, he can. I've had people who have done miserable things, and they're so sorry, they're just buckets of tears. And then the next week, they're doing the very same thing again. Now, there is a psychological disorder called sociopathology, where people, like many criminals, are sociopaths. They are very sorry they got caught. But they're not sorry that they grieved God or that they wounded another person. They're sorry they got caught. And that's what this is. Oh, he'll come back. The priests are saying to the people, now look, this is going to be all better. Don't worry. The sun will rise in the morning. God's saying, Ephraim, what am I going to do with you? Your your words are so superficial. There's nothing really behind it. See, God notices all this because He knows the heart. So He knows whether your strategy is to try to get Him off your back or your strategy is to try to please Him. He knows the difference. You can't fake Him out. You can fake me out, but you can't fake Him out. So, first of all, God's people have refused God's repeated offer to heal them. And and he just says, what can I do with you, Ephraim? Then you'll notice God's people would rather seek political help than God's help. This is a massive problem that goes throughout Hosea because they are trying to make a deal with Assyria, a wicked kingdom. They're trying to make a deal with Egypt. Egypt and Assyria are fighting each other. And the northern kingdom of Israel happens to be right on the major road that goes from the east to the west. They go from Assyria to Egypt. Israel's right in the middle of it. Wouldn't you know it? God puts his people right in the middle of this great highway. And so what's Israel's solution to their being threatened? Well, we'll pay off the Egyptians. Oh, no. No, we won't. We'll pay off the Assyrians. No, no. We'll pay off the Egyptians. No, no. Just making political alliances to cover their rear ends. And God is saying, look, you're not like just any geopolitical entity. You are my people. And your security is to be rooted in your knowledge of me. So did you you can have your armies. There's nothing wrong with having legitimate self-defense. But when you start putting your trust in your armies and in your wealth and in your political intrigue, you have abandoned me. And there are many of us who are doing that. We, we consciously, every day, examine that account and see every day what effect the stock market has had on our accounts. We watch our retirement programs assiduously. And God is simply saying, are you watching me with that much care? Are you reading my word with that much care? Are you building your life with that much concern? And so it's political intrigue that we depend upon. It's the, the power of men 
that we depend upon rather than him. Believe me, he notices. You can fake me out. You can't fake him out. He knows where we have put our trust. And then he says in chapter 8, God's people will then be exiled and oppressed. Put the trumpet to your lips, he says, and on and on. So the trumpet just means warfare is coming. Watch out. So God's people will be exiled and oppressed. In chapter 8, for example, you'll see what he says. Put the trumpet to your lips and the eagle is over the house of the Lord because the people have broken my covenant and rebelled against my law. Israel cries out to me, oh, our God, we acknowledge you. See, there again, you have this superficial thing. Oh, God, you say we have no knowledge of you. Oh, no, we acknowledge you. And then he says, yeah, you acknowledge me and Baal and Ashtaroth and all these other gods. You acknowledge all of us, which is, in effect, not to acknowledge me at all, because I am the only God to acknowledge me is to renounce all the rest of them. This is the irony of pluralism. Everybody wants to have an equal seat at the table theologically in America. Fine. In politics, that makes sense. In religion, it makes no sense. And the only person you exclude is the person who believes the Bible. Because the Bible is exclusive. If you believe in Jehovah, you don't believe in Baal. If you believe in Jesus Christ, you don't believe in Allah. Now, everybody has a, has a right to make their claims. The Muslim can make his claims. The Jewish person can make his claims. The Hindu can make his claims. The Christian can make his claims. But in all those cases, those claims are exclusive of every other claim. If you look at all the ancient religions, they all exclude everybody else. So what's this idea about all the religions being equally true? They could be equally false, but they can't be equally true because they're mutually exclusive. And these people are saying just this. Lord, we acknowledge you. You've got a seat at the table. Now we've got other people at the table too. Don't be so selfish-centered. Don't be so demanding, Jehovah. And Jehovah says, if that's the way you see me, as one at the table, you don't see me at all. You have no knowledge of me. Because I am the only Savior. As you'll see later in the text, look all the way over to chapter 12, is it? No, chapter 13, verse 4. He says, but I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. There wasn't any other God who brought you out of Egypt. You shall acknowledge no God but me, no Savior except me. You cannot acknowledge another God, the reality of another God. Now, you can acknowledge the reality of another religion. And you can acknowledge the dignity of the person who disagrees with you. And you can acknowledge the civil rights and the right to free expression of the person who disagrees with you. All that should be acknowledged. Our politics are built upon a Christian framework of free expression and respect of people, uh, people with whom we disagree. So we're not talking about wiping people out. We're not talking about taking anybody's rights away. We're talking about knowing God. And if you know Him, this is the claim that He's making. So He says, put the trumpet to the lips. Bring the warriors on because these people don't know Me even though they claim to. Because they don't understand me the way I really am. That's the claim that's being made in chapter 8. Now, chapter 9. And we're zipping along, boys. Chapter 9. God's indicted, judged, and punished people must mourn properly. And very quickly, let me just say, what he's saying here is, when, if there's anything in Hosea with which you agree about yourself, if you can look there and say, you know, I really have treated him as one among several deities. I've treated his religion as equal with all the rest. I have been arrogant. I haven't really known him as I ought to. I've done some of the stuff in here like lying, cheated on my income tax, you know, which means I stole. I haven't loved him as I ought. I mean, if you feel any, any of those things, then you're indicted too, just like me. 
I'm indicted. I did all those things, so I'm indicted. Now, what do I do? What's my, what's my responsibility? Make excuses? Yeah, Lord, you know, I really came from a dysfunctional family. Uh, my mother really never uh, bonded with me. I don't know what was wrong with her. And my dad, he, he abused alcohol a lot and, you know, just uh, never really had an intimate relationship with him. And, you know, my sister, she, she really beat up on me, you know, and it, had, it affected my view of women. And I've just had a hard time getting over that ever since. And so that's the reason I'm into, you know, bondage, killing, and so on. Uh, I just had a dysfunctional family. Uh, that's one way you can look at it. Or you can mourn properly and lament properly. And that's not proper lamentation. God in Lamentations actually does show us exactly how to mourn over our sin and over the destruction that comes to other people and sometimes our own situation because of it. First of all, He commands mourning. Do not rejoice, O Israel. He's telling us, look, you need to go into a period of mourning. There is a sense in which as Christian people, you know, in our worship service every Sunday morning, confession of sin. There's a time to confess your sin. Acknowledge that you come to this with nothing except Trust in Him. That's all you've got is what He's got. You don't come with anything of credit of yourself. You come trusting in Him. There's a true mourning over our sin. And then God justifies mourning. You've been unfaithful to your God. You ought to mourn. There's an appropriate place for mourning in the disciples' life. Uh, Peter says, Lord, depart from me. I'm a sinful man. And the Lord says, no, you come to me. I'm going to make you fishers of men. But Peter had an awareness of his own sin. And then God God further justifies the mourning by showing the consequences of our sin. He forgives our sin. Make no mistake about it. You come to him, all your sins are completely forgiven. But you can still see some dead bodies in the road. You know, if if you're a cruel, oppressive, arrogant boss, and you ask for his forgiveness, complete forgiveness. Complete forgiveness. But look behind you and see the destruction and the devastation. And there's restitution that needs to be made behind you. At the same time He forgives you, He also calls you to go back in your forgiveness, knowing that you're not guilty anymore before God, but you have created some debts with others. So we mourn for all kinds of reasons before the Lord. That's what He's saying in chapter 9, verses 1 through 9. Now, lastly, we come to chapters 9, 10 through 14, and we may or may not get this done, and that's okay. What's going on here is not the severity of God's grace as much as it is the splendor of God's grace. We've seen the scandal of His grace that He loves prostitutes like us. The severity of His grace is that His law is fully active toward His people that He loves. And you'll, you'll hear indictments and charges and convictions of His people. And sometimes those who are hypocrites get peeled off. So He is a fierce God. In His holiness. So His grace does not make Him less holy. It makes Him just as He is, a holy God. But we also see that uh, there is a splendor to this salvation. And the first thing I want us to notice in, these, in, in the latter half of 9, chapter 10, 11, 12, and 13, God warns His people. He warns us. That's because He loves us. Anybody, if you're in trouble and somebody loves you, they're going to warn you. If they don't love you, but rather they love their own popularity, they might not warn you because they don't want you to think that they're weird. But if they really know you're in trouble and they come to you in a loving way, a sensitive way, they will warn you. Wickedness leads to infertility and exile. <laughs> now, so 
You mean that's the reason I'm infertile? <laughs> well, no, not necessarily in our age, but in Hosea's age, it, it was. The, the fruitfulness of the land and the wombs of the women was based on their obedience to God. Now, it's not true today. So if you haven't had any children and you'd like to have them, don't think it's because you're in sin. That connection is not one-to-one these days. But in those days when the state and the church were coterminous and together, the same people, there was a physical cause and effect. Now, there'll be a physical cause and effect in heaven when the new Jerusalem comes, and it'll all be positive. So we have God's state in the Old Testament, God's state in the future. We are a stateless people. We're in diaspora. That's the way we're describing the Bible. So we don't have this cause and effect of fruitfulness of the land and obedience of the people. But in the Old Testament, you did. And basically, the point is that God will warn his people, if you continue this way, there are going to be consequences. So you'll see that. And, and I'll, uh, I'm going to have to print this for you next time because I'm going to race so fast, you're not going to have time to write these in. Uh, but uh, he uses four analogies to make the points he's going to make. And this is the first one, the grapes and the figs. Then you come to chapter 10. I know I'm moving too fast for you. It's all right. Chapter 10, idolatry leads to destruction. That's the next warning. That if you bring in other gods, they're absolutely going to eat your lunch. And that's what he's saying. He's going to smash those altars. They're not going to last long term. They're, they're under judgment already, those altars of those false gods. And pretty soon the thickets are just simply going to take over the land. And those gods that you were worshiping will end up being idols for destruction, as Hosea calls them. Idols for destruction. They destroy you, and then he's going to destroy them. So don't get tied up with them because he's going to destroy them. So idolatry leads to destruction, and he speaks of Israel as a spreading vine. Idols ultimately disgrace God's people. It's a disgrace to us because we're the people who know our God, as we're described in the Bible. People who know their God. And then when we take idols, what are we saying? We don't know God. We lose our highest reason for dignity when we take on other gods in our lives. And then in chapter 10, you'll see that auto-salvation leads to no salvation. This, once again, is where we're, we're compared to a heifer. And you'll see that he refers to Bethel, which is one of the places for false worship in the northern kingdom. And, you know, the major issue is that we trust ourselves and our politics. And if we trust our politics, then we'll die by our politics. You live by the sword, you die by the sword. You want your life to be a political, financial, uh, power-driven life, then the financial and the power will eat your lunch and chew you up and spit you out. That's what God's saying. It's just a warning that whichever weapon you choose to live your life, that's that's the weapon that's going to chew you up. And then he says that childish rebellion leads to parental discipline. And he uses the analogy in chapters 11, 12, and 13 of our being a child. And he says, if you'll look, for example, in chapter 11, when Israel was a child, verse 1, I loved him. And out of Egypt I called my son. But the more I called Israel, the further they went from me. They sacrificed to the Baals and they burned incense to images. It was I who taught Ephraim to walk. See, he's, he's saying, I'm, I'm your father. I used to take your little hands when you were 11 months, years, year, 11 months old. And, and I used to just teach you to walk like this. I was the one who brought you up. And you got into trouble in Egypt. And I was the one who took you by the hand and led you out of there. And how are you treating me? Like I can't be trusted. That's the way you're treating me. I was your father who fed you and cared for you, protected you. And now you treat me like you can't trust me. What do you think that feels like? Some of the daddies in this room know what it feels like. To have taken care of a son all of his life. And then he rises up and turns his back on you. You know how that feels. 
That's exactly how God feels. Most of us here in this room have had Christian people in our lives. Most of us here have had that. We've been nurtured. We've been taught. We've been loved. And over and over again, we found ourselves turning our back on what our mamas taught us or what somebody else taught us that was very important. And most importantly, we turned our back on the knowledge of God. So this is what he's saying. Now, that sets us up for the last uh, section, which we're going to have to postpone until next week. Uh, When we come to chapter 14, we come to the real splendor of what God has waiting for us. We don't get to the splendor without going through the severity. You don't get to the fullness of the grace of God without understanding His law and our violations against it. Do you notice how carefully that Dr. Hosea is carefully taking us through our prescription here? We're not ignoring the severe side of God. We're not ignoring the fearing of Him. That We do that before we get to the loving of Him and the splendor of our ultimate glory in the time ahead. So we'll get to that in chapter 14. We'll also notice when we get to 14, there's a way in which we must approach that gift of God so that we're sure to enjoy it. He doesn't just give it to everybody. He gives it to people who come to Him in His way. And we'll look at that very carefully next time as we also look at the first chapter and a half of Joel. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for the words of the prophet, which we desperately need in our own lives and in our own generation. Lord, send us out from this place as Your prophets, those who believe Your Word and who will not just go along with every wind of doctrine and everything that we hear and see, but men who have heard something about God, who know You and want to know You more and who will live out what we know. Help us, O God, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you all. The uh, small group meeting is on the south side of the room, south side of the room, small group meeting for 15 minutes.